Recovery Elevator, episode 462. And one of the things that I noticed was learning about balance is it wasn't anything I was ever going to find. It, it's something that we don't find. It's something that we create. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. Listeners, on today's episode, we have Tana. She's 44 years old from Washington State and took her last drink on July 30th, 2020. Great job, Tana. I want to give a shout out to all of our Cafe RE chat hosts. You guys do such an incredible job. Thank you for your time. Listeners, today is going to be a good day. In fact, today has already been a good day. Registration is now open for our dry January course, Restore. It's time to get your alcohol-free connect on and say adios to the booze. Now, our first session as a cohort is this Monday, January 1st at 5 p.m. Pacific or 8 p.m. Eastern. Now, the most common issue I hear from people is they don't have a network of others who don't drink. Well, our Restore course is going to solve that. And on top of that, you're going to learn all about alcohol, alcohol addiction, and how to beat it. So what do you say, let's get 2024 started right? There's a link in the show notes to sign up and for more information, thank you, Robin. Oh, here's a fun one. Scientists say, mystery of how red wine headaches occur may be solved. Now I'm no scientist, but I solved the mystery of red wine headaches the first time I drank a lot of red wine. Red wine contains the most addictive drug on the planet called ethanol. What goes up must come down and it lands with a headache or a hangover. Now, to be fair, the article supposedly says, and this isn't confirmed, that the grape that makes the red wine has a certain chemical called quercetin, which can induce headaches for some when the moon is cresting on the eastern horizon. I'm kidding. I made that last part up about the moon, but you get the point. When I saw this headline, I just laughed because as a society, We are collectively seeking ways to justify our drinking. Similar to how the problematic drinker will spin a story to justify their own drinking, such as, I drink as much as my friends do, or it's what we do in this profession. I laugh because this article is basically saying, the wine can't cause the devastation, it must be some additional ingredient in the wine. Well, scientists have cracked it with the red wine, but what about tequila, vodka, beer, or gin? Again, mystery solved, it's alcohol. It will give you a headache if you drink enough. And another disclaimer, you will also die if you drink enough of it. Now, there's a link in the show notes if you wanna check out this article, but in my opinion, it's a waste of time. Now, before we get any further, let's hear from Exact Nature. Exact Nature was founded by a father and son in addiction recovery. Exact Nature's all-natural CBD products are specially formulated to help you face the exceptional challenges of recovery, and we are so grateful to have them as our sponsor. Beat your cravings with their Detox Blend. If you are interested in learning more, head on over to exactnature.com and use the promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order. That is RE20 at exactnature.com. Okay, let's get started. Today is a big day and here is why. On December 25th, 1957, a teenager named Richard Starkey, better known as Ringo Starr, received his first drum set. 
Thank you, Santa, for giving that man a hi-hat, some cymbals, drums, and wooden sticks. Santa gives a gift of a drum set, and now we all have wonderful music. We all live in a yellow submarine. Right, I'll stop there. Let me say that last part again. Santa gives so we can have. You may say to yourself, what's in it for Santa? Christmas movies about Santa, his workshop, the elves, the reindeer. These feel-good movies are all fun to watch. But can you imagine the behind-the-scenes logistics of making toys for every kid in the world? Well, most of them. Of course, product development teams are working with elf engineers to make the toys. Let's talk supply chain. Shipping routes to the North Pole become more perilous the further north you go. Can you imagine caring for Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Comet, Cupid, Donner, Blitzen, and Randy in freezing cold temperatures? And of course, there are backup reindeer. Now, I've got four tiny Nigerian dwarf goats that do not have the capacity to fly, and even that seems like a full-time job at times. Does Santa accept returns on the gifts? Again, what's in it for Santa? Santa seemingly gives, gives, and gives. Well, Santa is a smart dude who has stumbled across an ironclad universal law. The law is this, to give is to have. Now, this is an important one. Let me say it again, to give is to have. Now, let's tie this into sobriety. To give is to have. In 1935, AA founder Bill W. found that when he shared his experience, strength, and hope to another individual who was also struggling with alcohol, then Bill magically had the strength to remain sober. Now, this isn't magic, but it's the universal law. To give is to have. This can also be said the other way. To have is to give. Either way works. So Bill W. would go to hospitals in Manhattan, New York, and ask doctors if he could speak to the most desperate of alcoholic cases. Now, in 1935, alcoholism was classified as a terminal disease. We've come a long way. So the doctors were like, uh, yeah, Bill, be my guest. So Bill gave and gave and gave to the patients in the hospital beds. And yet after each hospital session, he recognized he was becoming stronger in his own sobriety. Now, this initial spark of true generosity has had such the ripple effect that millions of people today are sharing their stories or giving away their experiences to the newcomer in AA meetings. I can truly say that this spark gave me the inspiration to create Recovery Elevator in 2015. Without Bill W. giving, 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 Recovery Elevator doesn't exist. Bill gave so we could all have. In return, Bill W. logged 37 years alcohol-free until his death in 1971. So Bill had because he gave. Now, let's simplify sobriety for a second. You need to quit drinking and at the same time start building a life that no longer requires alcohol. Tapping into this universal law is a great way to do that. To have is to give, and to give is to have. On this special day today, Christmas, and let's not limit this to one day a year, ask yourself how you can give. Now, this in no way needs to be monetary. In fact, there are better ways. Our time is the most valuable thing that we can give. So today I give you the message of Merry Christmas to plant the seed that to give is to have and to have is to give. Most of us have learned a way or path that didn't work, or maybe it kinda worked, but it was also incredibly painful. For me, that path required numbing agents, alcohol being at the top of that list. 
Now, I know there are a couple thousand of you who listen to this podcast first thing Monday morning when the episodes are released. Fantastic. Thank you for your time. How blessed I am to get your ear first thing in the morning. Now, ask not what Santa or your family can give to you, but what you can give to them. Now, I definitely stole that line from JFK and swapped out some words. But the reason why we are still hearing that famous inaugural presidential address from January 1961 is because it was in line with a universal truth or law, and it resonated with people. Listeners, thank you for being with us on this special day today. Merry Christmas. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's intro. I had a good time, as always, putting it together. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Tana. Team RE. December is here, and so is the season of gift giving. In recovery, we learn that we are worthy. We are worthy of love, we are worthy of connection, and we are worthy of understanding and defining our needs. So, when it comes to gift giving, do you add yourself to your gift list? Why not, right? In taking care of yourself, you allow yourself to show up the way you want to show up. In taking care of yourself, you allow yourself to get help when it comes to meeting your needs. You can start therapy as a gift to yourself. You can go for daily walks. You can go get a manicure. There are so many ways that you can give yourself the gift of love. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash elevator. Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Tana to the show. Tana, how are you doing today? I'm good, Chris. Super, super, super excited that you're here. Grateful for you. Can you let listeners know how long you've been sober? I have been sober for just over three years consistently. My sobriety date is July 30th, 2020, but I actually prefer to reference my journey date, which was October 1st of 2019, because that's when it really began for me. And it wasn't a one and done. It was 10 months of me trying to get my sobriety off the ground. That's amazing, man. A little over four years on the path and a little over three years of continuous sobriety. Nice job, sister. Mm, Thank you. How does it feel? Oh, it feels like, um, you know, a different life, almost a different life than where I was at four years ago in many ways. I think that can be a good thing. It's not always yes. not always easy, but a good thing. Yeah. Uh, before we get into it, Tana, let's find out a little bit about you. Can you tell listeners where you're from, yep. what you do for a living, any family you want to tell us about, and most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? I am from Washington State, and I've lived here my whole life, Pacific Northwest, and I, for a living, I have worked in healthcare since I was 16 years old, so very long time. And as of the last, gosh, I don't know, two years, 
over a year now. I have been teaching. I have a a new side job slash passion, which is teaching. I teach yoga and I work in the administrative side of healthcare. So pretty much everything not dealing with blood. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what about any family and then fun? Family. um, Yes, I have uh, three children and three wonderful children. They are the greatest, some of the greatest people I know. And so I have a 22 year old daughter and a 20 year old son, both recent college graduates who've launched out of the nest. And I have a 10 year old daughter. So three kids and, and myself, I'm recently separated from my husband. So I'm living by myself with my daughter. And yeah, so that's new extended family. Really my, my extended family is this community. I have a lot of friends in my community here in Washington state, but also a new family through recovery elevator. Um, and for fun, I have fun. I find fun everywhere. I, I love to be outside. I love to run. I love to hike. I love to backpack. I love to dance. I love music. I just love to have fun anywhere all the time. Just, I feel like life is fun. (laughs) Life is what we make it. So yeah, I'm always having a good time. Uh, It's been cool to see you explore like your, like your new camping hobby. And I have aspirations to like one of these days I want to be like Tana. As cl- <laughs> as close as I've came, like I'll see you go on these multi-day backpacking camping trips. I'm like, oh, what a badass. And like everything's on your back. And like the closest I came was like I think I hiked through prairie out to the lake shore, maybe a quarter mile. And then I had a wagon with me and I had to do two trips to bring all the creature comforts with me. So I'm not, I'm not there, but vicariously, I love watching you try yeah. these new things and just be like, oh, one of these days I'll be yeah. a Tana. You know, it's been a new hobby and a discovery. Recovery for me has been like a rediscovery of myself. So some of the old things that I used to love, I've picked back up, but it's also been like discovery of things that I didn't know I loved, things that I'm still learning about myself and it's been really fun backpacking. It was a rewrite of my love for camping because my love for camping was very centered around drinking and I love the outdoors and the idea of going back to camp and sit around and drink the way we used to is just not something I was ready for. So I, I decided to try backpacking because I like to hike and it taught me a lot about just simple. There's, I just find lessons everywhere. And backpacking was one, another one of those things that I, I learned to live more simply. Um, what do I actually need? <laughs> and we don't really need a lot. I tend to be a pack rat. I don't travel light anywhere. I've got a lot of bags. <laughs> so it's taught me a lot about, you know, what do I actually need? And just appreciate just nature and simplicity and and it's taught me a lot about my own strength, what I can carry on my own back. And yeah, I just, I love being out in nature and alone with myself and also with, with good friends that also enjoy that. Well, one of these days I will leave one my, of these days. I'll we'll leave my wagon at home, be able to get there. Tana, let's do what we came here to do and talk about your recovery journey and your experience with alcohol. Let us know where you want to start. Maybe from the beginning with some first exposure, first experiences and then 
we'll walk this road together, sister. Sounds good. Well, it began. Where did it begin? Um, I grew up in a family of social drinkers. Um, I was raised by my dad, who took care of three kids. <sighs> I am sorry. I have to breathe through this. <laughs> You're okay. Sorry. Raised by my dad, who recently passed away. So just getting that out of the way right away. Um, so raised by my dad, who was raised three kids alone. He was a single dad from the age my siblings were four. I was three. My brother, my younger brother was less than a year old. And so I was raised by my father who worked his ass off to take care of us. And, and he drank socially. And my family was very close family. They all drank socially. Um, so growing up, I was exposed to it. Also, um, a little different was that my my mother, um, who's... My mother is um, an alcoholic. So my mom and dad split when I was pretty young. And so my dad raised us for that reason. So I knew from an early age that my mom was struggling and suffering. Um, but my dad did a lot to really shield our image of her. And so from an early age, we had a lot of questions about that. And he was a really funny guy and always said that, you know, because we would ask and he would tell us stories, always age appropriate. When we were little, it was, you know, your mom's not here because my feet stink. Like he always told us it was because his feet smelled too bad. <laughs> and then as we got older, you know, I would pry. I need, no, dad, really. And as I got older, he, he would, he shared with me eventually, you know, your mom is, um, your mom's got an illness that's hard to understand. She, she has alcoholism and her dad ha had alcoholism and it runs in the family. And you know, it's not her choice and she loves you. And so from a really early age, uh, I understood or knew what that was. And, you know, because of the way my dad guided or modeled that, he just, he wanted us to have acceptance. And, and, and even though we didn't fully understand at that time. So from a young age, we just accepted that that's the way life was and, and how, and what she was dealing with. And we still saw her and loved her and, um, but he did the, the, he was a primary parent. We saw her every other weekend and, um, had an awesome childhood. He, you know, drank socially, but he really didn't have time for it. And later in life, he said, you know, you all kept me grounded. Uh, just, he was working like a dog. And we, so other than that, like a spending time, we spent a lot of time with our grandparents who were dad's mom really stepped in to be, um, a maternal support for us. And she, she was one of the most fun and funniest women. She was always having a good time, but she was a drinker too, like a social drinker, more or less. I mean, I have a different perception now from where I'm at in the journey, but growing up, she was always laughing. And my grandparents took us to happy hour and they lived on a lake and we would go to happy hour every day. I didn't know what happy hour was. It was the grandma laughed a lot more and it was really fun. Um, <laughs> so I didn't have a bad, you know, I didn't really, that was my exposure growing up. And as I got to understand it more in high school, you know, I, my mom and I, I ended up moving in with my mom because my dad had, had sold our family home and he was building a new house and there wasn't really space for us. I mean, he created space for us, but Anyways, I moved in with my mom and it was, I really got to understand because I was living with her 
what, you know, how dark it was in her world. And I really saw it. And it wasn't until then that I actually had some sort of um, bitterness towards her and, you know, saw, really saw what alcoholism looked like. Um, She's always a hardworking, functional alcoholic. So that was my learning about it, living with her and just seeing, you know, seeing, witnessing um, as a teenager, her blacking out daily or even every evening, um, you know, just a lot of um, injuries, you know, falls, finding her passed out. And it was, you know, it was just, it was not a good environment for me. And I think that's kind of really when my, my world and my perception of myself, my, my confidence, just a lot changed in my own, my internal world. And so I ended up more or less running away from home at age 17 and becoming an adult because I just wanted to, I just wanted to start a new life. I wanted to create the life that I felt was going to be better than what I, better than that. I just wanted a new life. I wanted to be happy. I didn't like, I hated the feeling. I was very depressed. I didn't know I was depressed there. I just wanted to write my own story. And so I started working full time bought a house at 18. Uh, I just, I knew for me, like what I knew was that I wanted to, I I guess at that point, I really realized how deep addiction ran in my family. My mom's father had died from alcoholism related um, at I think 54, 52 or 54, very young. Um, And I learned more about that. So just the more I learned, the more I realized like, I, I have to break the cycle. Like this shit is not, going to be a part of my story. And I knew I needed to get away. And so I did. My siblings were both experimenting with um, alcohol early. I was very active in school and, you know, always seemed to find a way to find my people, find, you know, people to, I found my own community and would sort of create that everywhere I went, friendships, just to get away from it. And so, yeah, moving out at 17, starting work full time, just really tried to make a new life for myself. And that was like one of my life goals, just to break the cycle, never be, never be that. So from there I was in a, you know, ended up getting pregnant before I was married and ended up having my two older kids when I was pretty young, I was in my early twenties. And at that point I knew that the relationship wasn't a a good one for me because I kind of went into it when I was looking for a place to escape And, but I also being one that was grown up, very adaptable, I just felt like I had accepted that 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 was going to be my life. I was accepting the misery that I felt in the, in the marriage and, and had my two kids at a young age. And until one day I woke up and was like, no, this isn't for me. Um, So, you know, I, from there, I having my, I was just focused on raising kids, being a mom, being the best mom I could be my whole world center was centered around my kids. And that was my, my identity. My identity became being a mom, being the best mom. I didn't drink hardly ever. I mean, I experimented a little bit in high school, but I really was so focused on them that I didn't have time. I didn't think about it. It just, I didn't really, that just wasn't a part of my life. And as they got older and life went on and, you know, put the pieces back together, ended up getting remarried about five years later. And in my, shortly after I got married, we had a you know, big surprise, found out I was expecting. <laughs> and uh, so uh, my, my wonderful 
third child. And it was after that, that, um, life got really hard and, you know, I was trying to maintain working, trying to maintain this idea of what a perfect mom looked like, giving my kids the perfect life. It was just, it was a lot. They were very busy. I was supporting them, supporting them in the way of just, you know, making sure, like, I wanted them to have the life that I didn't have. I wanted them to have someone devoted to getting them to where they needed to go, allowing them to be, you know, supporting them being in all the sports, supporting their learning, supporting their, you know, I, I ended up dropping out of, of high school my senior year because I was trying to manage work full time, you know, so that I could have a home of my own. And, and so that was a big regret and probably the first real feeling of shame that I felt about myself. So it was my mission to see my children have the opportunity to go to college, to, to have a home that supported their learning, to have a home and a parent that was present to support all of their dreams because that became my purpose. And yeah. so anyhow, I just, and I had a third child and life got busy and we were always on the go. I was, you know, it was a production line of food prep on Sundays to make sure that they had what they needed. And, and, um, I just, I want, I was so, so focused on them and had my, my youngest in tow all the time, you know, living off of goldfish in the car seat as we were, I was a chauffeur <laughs> and it was fun. It was, I loved it. I loved every bit of it, but it, it just got really hard. Yeah. We've covered a lot of ground, Tana, and I just wanted like as we head into this this next phase because I know you know just knowing each other like I know that there's that there's a shift coming right mm -hmm. in the in the story but I just want to acknowledge some things from from this first portion just you know being raised by by a a, a single father basically from that young age you know you and I are close in age that's mm -hmm. like not typical not the not the norm, especially in that generation. I, I don't I th think it's still not no. today, but certainly not back then. Having some good family support and having some, you know, you mentioned your grandmother was like maternal support to you, but also like there's just like acknowledging that gap. And even like when you said you moved in with your mom, like kind of developing some of those hard feelings and, and frustrations that, that your dad kind of protected you from. I just want to acknowledge that, that like that's there. And I think a lot of us do this, thing when we when we look at our childhoods i know i've i certainly did do it still do it like where we're just like yeah it's, you know this is normal this is what it was and when we're in that we have to when we're going through it like not every day can be a catastrophe because we would never be able to get anything done yeah so we find a way to protect ourselves and because mm -hmm. you know that's survival that's coping it seems like that instilled a lot of you know we can develop some tough coping mechanisms but there's also some great positives that good habits that can that can come from these tough times as well you know being an incredibly hard worker owning a home at 18 i couldn't even i couldn't even imagine <laughs> owning a home at 18 but you know like that independence and and looking to take care of yourself and yeah like i just i want to note that like you went through a lot of shit just just leading up to the end of your teen years, like that's, I mean, that was, uh, that's a lot to go through. And then, you know, with the two older kids, st you know, starting off that first marriage and having to shift your attention to having a recognition of what your upbringing was and wanting to be what, what, what you didn't have for your kids. Um, yes. And then, and then again, with your, with your youngest, just recognizing that gap. And I think that's, I think that's, 
there's parts of that that are that are admirable. I know sometimes we can get lost in this as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also to to be able to look and be like, I want for them what I didn't have. Anyway, that's my, so there's my recap and play-by-play team. Uh, I just wanted to acknowledge these things. So at this point in your story, um, you've had your, you've had your youngest mm-hmm. and you're running. You're like, yeah. you are going, yep. you're taking, taking these kids. Yeah. What role does, does alcohol have a role in your life at, at this point? It began to a little bit. So one thing that I left out and this, this, I think what, and I, I kind of come to this conclusion, or at least this, what I think now that when I was young, you know, my mom chain smoked and drank and I I was so repulsed by both of those things. And I, I just wanted out. I didn't I hated the way cigarettes smelled. Um, my dad was also huge anti, you know, was always like, preaching to my mom about secondhand smoke and you know how harmful it was for us and he was so against it and I just hated the smell of it growing you know when I had to live with her having it in my hair I went to great lengths to make sure that you know that I didn't smell like it and I was embarrassed and I just never you know growing up until that point I never really you know felt any insecurity I didn't lack confidence and I was a weird kid I was very strange, (laughs) but I was very secure in who I was and my life was not normal. Like you mentioned, it was very different, but that's what I knew and I was happy, but that was the shift for me, like feeling insecure. And so anyhow, when I started feeling like depressed in high school, I'm just backing it up for a minute. um, I knew that it was the first time I really wanted to self harm sort of self-destruct. And that was like, I, I had dated a boy in high school and of course, you know, silly heartbreak. I was mad about it. I was so hurt and I was so mad that I, I ended up um, smoking a cigarette and I about threw up. I had to lay on the cold concrete because it made me sick. And I was like, but it was like, I, in my mind, I was going to, it was like, I wanted to hurt myself. I felt bad and I just felt like a bad person. And, and I smoked that cigarette to, rebel. And I was always a good kid. I didn't ever want to get in trouble. Um, I just, you know, I was, that wasn't who I was or, you know, as a kid, I just wanted to be a good girl. So anyhow, that was the first time I really like rebelled in that way. And, and as years went on, I, I really, I developed a a smoking habit. Like I, I started smoking cigarettes and, um, and I smoked and it was, interesting because I would smoke very little, but I was very addicted to it. And so it's interesting that we have this idea of what like alcoholism looks like or any addiction, like it is so different looking. I could not put it down. That was my only tool at that point that I learned how to self-soothe. And it became um, something that I, the first thing that I hid, like people talk about hiding drinking. I was so ashamed that I smoked that I went to great lengths to hide that. I didn't hide drinking as much, but I hid smoking. Um, all of those things that we talk about, I did. So anyhow, what? where am I going with this? Um, that was the first time I, I used, found something that worked for me that was my tool. And I think that kept me away from drinking for so long because that was my, my soother. That was what I used. So after, fast forward, after I had my third and I was running like a, a mad woman trying to be all to everybody and give everything away, that was a part of me that was the one thing that I would give to myself. One thing, and it would maybe be two cigarettes a day. <laughs> That's how little it was. 
at times. Um, but it was the one thing that was mine that I could give to me that I didn't have to give away. It was mine. And um, I just felt very selfless in my life. And that was mine. And so after I had my, my daughter, my third, my husband had said to me, I'll remember this. He was like, cause I went, I, I never smoked during pregnancy. It was very, you know, always quit cold Turkey, never had a problem. Same with drinking what little I drank before. Anyhow, uh, when I quit smoking during, as soon as I found out I was pregnant, he, my husband said, I hope you don't pick it back up. Cause I, you know, I just, I'm, it's so bad for you. And I remember he said, you know, I don't care if you drink wine at night, just don't smoke. Mm-hmm. And for some reason in my head that stuck out. And as you know, the first few years of her life, I, you know, I was real busy and I found something else that worked for me, which was running. Running gave me that same sensation in my lungs. It helped me self-soothe. I learned a healthy tool and I was like, man, where was this? I should have learned this a long time ago because uh, I had a I had a healthy tool and I ran all the time. Competitively, I ran for my own, you know, just, just for my own mental health, my own balance. And um, when life got too busy that I was, you know, she wouldn't, she, my youngest was no longer participating in her jogging stroller. She was not having it. And it was frustrating. And I didn't have time because I was always on the go. Once I lost that tool, I was like, okay, well, I can't smoke. I can't run. I'm always on the go. What do I, what's for me? Like, I felt like at that point I had nothing left for me, Um, no way to cope and no tools so I, you know, I would have drink a, a glass of wine and um, it became my friend when I was in the kitchen cooking these production line meals, prepping food for the week. And it became something that I would, you know, maybe it's just started with a glass of wine at night. It became, you know, how I would gather with other moms um, in my kids' activities. It just became that thing that I realized was like, oh. It was like that cigarette at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. It was the one thing that I didn't have to give away. It's crazy how it can, how it can sneak in. And we, yeah. and we just don't like, we never, when we start this, this relationship with this thing, we don't, we don't see what it's going to turn into. We don't, we, ne- we never assume that it's a new, mm-hmm. it's a new relationship and it's great. And it's, it really is. I think you've done a great job of, of illustrating that it's, it's a tool. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's how we use it, and and it works until it doesn't. Until it doesn't. Yeah, there's <laughs> until, always this, until it doesn't. <laughs> until you're pissing yeah. your pants on a Tuesday morning, <laughs> right. and your kids are waking up. Anyway, that's yep. the whole thing. <laughs> it does exactly. Yeah, I've learned. I've, you know, it it was exactly that. It was a, it was a progression, and it was a tool until I realized that it was that one glass turned into two glasses. It turned into oh my god, I drink a bottle what and it it became that thing that then i started feeling ashamed and once that shame came in i started to question and you know obviously i was questioning kind of up to that point but it was so normal it was so part of my our social lives like we would do birthday parties with kids and they'd be drinking you know anything you do is like related to a brewery i you know i got into enjoying beer and and other types of alcohol and it was a, a way that we would connect with people. And, you know, I, with my family history and my whole, you know, earlier life mission to break the cycle, once I started feeling like, um, something doesn't feel right about this for me, I started questioning it and things started shifting. And 
I recognize, uh, you know, at this point in my life, my, my siblings were really in a bad place. It was probably my mid thirties when just a lot shifted my, my, how I was feeling inside about it. Uh, I was watching my, my dad, who was my number one fall into, fall into addiction. And I never thought I would see somebody of, in my mind, his caliber, intelligence, just the hero that he was to me, someone of his strength lose, lose to addiction. Uh, and he got sucked in and I just, I, you know, I became estranged from my family. My dad, I, I was, I was still not there yet. So I was mad at him about it. How could you do this to me? How could you be, you know, I felt like it was, it was personal and I was hurt by it. So as my drinking started to pick up slowly, I realized like, okay, something isn't right. And I started questioning it and I would try to talk about it to people that were in my social circle or my husband and because nobody said anything to me. And when I had the courage to speak up, they all said, oh, you're so hard on yourself. You think you have a problem? You think you're an alcoholic? I'm like, well, gosh, I don't know. I just don't feel like this doesn't feel right with me. And I'm questioning it. And so I went through probably a year of of feeling like everyone around me was telling me what to believe. Um, and at that time in my life, I relied on everyone else's opinions of me and couldn't trust my own instincts. And so, yeah, anyhow, I it was picking up and I started picking up literature. I started reading. So I was like, I got to know what, what this is and understand this better. And found the podcast. I think I was hung over one day. <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, you know, I think a lot of us come to it this way where we Google, like, am I an alcoholic? Or I didn't, I had never listened to a podcast before. Found the Recovery Elevator podcast, laying in bed, hating myself, questioning everything. Started listening to the podcast, started picking up books, listening to audiobooks. Annie Grace was one just a lot of books, a lot of, I just wanted to get my hands on anything related to addiction to not just understand what I was feeling inside, but the family history that I had and this mission to break the cycle. Well, I needed to know what I was up against. And so that's how I found my way to recovery elevator in October of 2019. And here I am four years later. And one of the, probably one of the most it sounds silly, but it was probably one of the most courageous decisions I made because I was terrified of if I'm going to seek help, then that means I'm identifying as this. Mm-hmm. And I was so afraid of the stigma. I went, tried to go to AA and I, w- I, I couldn't even walk in. I was so afraid to be seen somewhere like that. And I found this online community. I was like, okay, cool. No one will have to know. <laughs> I, you know, there won't be a parking lot where they see me and, you know. It just, I was so, so ashamed of where I was at that point. So, and, you know, I was still kind of questioning whether I was or wasn't. I don't think it matters whether it was or wasn't there. You know, it's just, it's a progression. I had enough evidence of where that is heading and I'm getting off this, like pull over. I'm out, (laughs) I'm not going. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a bold step. And it's, there's a, we've talked to a lot of people who have, had similar experiences where we we look within our peer group. And this is not like I don't say this to identify as well, Tana. The people that you must have asked were alcoholics too. Like that's not <laughs> that's not it. I'm not I'm not mm-hmm. saying that. But you know, if we ask our our group, we, we can't, you know, we don't know what their journey is. We don't know where they're at. You know, maybe for them it is a couple beers or a couple glasses of wine and they're fine with it. Or it, it it's not about that, but it's 
it can be really hard because that's a tough thing. Like one, that's a tough thing to ask. Like, hey, like, do you think this is maybe a problem, or or to to just identify like I'm feeling uncomfortable with with my usage or consumption or my relationship with this thing. And a lot of times we just have this confirmation bias. It's like this is a thing that we have in common, and and I know I didn't. I had a buddy who went to rehab, and like when he came back, I was like, yeah, but like, are you really that bad? Like, is it re- like? Can't you just have a couple? And like, I didn't want to believe that he could, that something could be like, quote unquote, wrong with him. And like, fuck that terminology, by the way. Yeah. Um, because then what does that say about me? So like, uh, let me try to convince him that he's fine. Cause then that must mean that I'm okay too. Yeah. It's, exactly. it, there's, there's some real societal sensitivities that like, if you can or cannot, safely consume alcohol like where you fall on this hierarchy of a human being which is it's garbage it's absolute garbage and i think it's incredibly bold to take those steps and just and like just to ask yourself those questions and Mm -hmm. to recognize for yourself that it it doesn't matter if you like if you want to be called an alcoholic or if you don't none of those things matter but just the simple question what is my relationship like with this thing is it healthy? Is it is it propelling me towards the life that I want, or is it keeping me from something? Absolutely. And, and then mm-hmm. make it make a choice. It's like yes. science, it, man. <laughs> I know. Yes, absolutely. And you know, I think for me, I you know, my mission to be not just break the cycle, but my mission once I became a mom was I am going to be for them what I wanted for myself, what I felt I was missing, and give them a life that I wanted for myself. But at that time in my life, I was like, life, this is about acceptance. My life is over. It's all about them. I lost my identity. It was um, all about just being a support. And, I, you know, I still battle that part of myself where I want to focus my myself or my time, my energy on, on supporting other people because I love, I love uh, service work. I love supporting. I, I just, I have a, I love people. I love the people that are in my life they're my, you know, they're my world and people in the community have become part of that. Um, just so, you know, I have to be careful now. It's just so much I've learned about myself and that being one of them that I get easily lost when I'm focused too much outward, pouring too much outward. Um, anyhow, I'm getting off track there. Yeah. So just knowing that, what I was starting to see in myself and, and realizing that I don't need somebody else to tell me what I know. I don't need someone else to tell me what's right for me or what I'm questioning. I know where I need to be. I had never done anything online other than Facebook at the time. I knew nothing about it. This is before the pandemic. Um, I, I remember walking, I would walk daily and listen to the podcast and there was advertisement for the Bozeman um, retreat and it was so, you know, I've had these moments along the way where it's just an absolute clarity and it's this whisper of this is what you need to do and joining recovery elevator or, um, cafe RE, um, October 1st was one of those moments where I, you know, as a, when I was drinking, I would get the case of the buckets all the time and do stupid things. <laughs> well, I still have the case of the buckets. It's just, I still do things that they're, they're courageous things that are, taking me where I want to go. And so joining and seeking connection, learning there were more people out there, connecting with people that I was hearing on the podcast, knowing there are more people out there just like me when I would hear those stories and they resonated with me. 
I just knew I needed to be with these people that I was hearing and the, the Bozeman retreat, I was walking. I'm really, really, really shy in large groups. Um, I, I just, I'm not shy when you know me, but in a large group, I get really um, quiet. And I was hearing this talk about Bozeman retreat and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that sounds absolutely terrifying. And I know I'm going to be there someday. I just know that I need to go and that's going to be in my future. I just knew it. I felt it. Same thing with joining Cafe RE, connecting with people. I just, I felt so alone in the world, even though I had people in my life. I felt so lonely within my own world that I needed to talk to people that I, that could, I could relate to. And, and that's really where the healing has begun for me was, is the connection with, with other people having the courage to step into an online world. Like I'm, I just was like, I don't even know what this is. This is scary. But right away, it felt like the right thing. Right away, um, within weeks, I was looking for people in my area to connect with in person. Right away, I met somebody in person and we started creating um, independent meetups and, you know, bring people together. I just knew that I needed it. I knew other people needed it. And so many things from there just took off and, and changed in my life and so yeah, it's been this last four years have been just, they've been really, really good. They've been life-changing. Um, so much is different now from where I was then. And also, you know, it, was, it wasn't it was easy getting, it wasn't easy figuring it out in the beginning. I really struggled and really had a hard time the first 10 months. And the, what I learned in this community was one thing I knew nothing about relapse. I didn't know it was part of it. I didn't know that you know, cause it, it was the first time in my life that I had ever committed and decided I was going to do something yeah. and not succeeded right away. That's just how I am. I'm very, when I resolve to do something, that's just it. It's done. It's, it's, that's it. And I'm like, wait a second, how come I can't, why, why did I just drink again last night? Like, what the hell is this? I don't understand. I just, so the community came together and they, they taught me about this. Like, it's you no, know, that's part of it. Like, we still love you and, and we're here for you and pick yourself back up. And I did many times. <laughs> I call them resets, not re relapses in my mind. They're resets. I just needed a reset and, and come back to it. And anyhow, so moving, moving through that, having a community of people that showed up that didn't make me feel bad about myself let me know, Hey, this is part of it, you know, for most of us, you know, and I didn't try to quit until I joined cafe RE. And so my, all of my resets, <laughs> I, I would report in, I would check yeah. in <laughs> and, 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 you know, people were so, so kind to me. They were so loving to me and, and help me, help me figure that out so that I could help myself and rebuild. Um, so yeah, life's been really good. It's, in recovery and super, super grateful for the community. As I mentioned, it's a new family and very thankful. I think going through some of those, going through some of those hard times, the, the resets, the field research, the relapse, the start over, whatever verbiage works for you, I would encourage you to, to use. Cause again, it's, I think the language we use should, we should pick things that help us to go forward. But those things take on a different face when we have when we have that support. We've got a couple minutes before we get to rapid fire, but one thing, a last question I wanted to ask was, you know, we've one of the things that you and I have talked about, Tana, is just 
like there are challenges. It's not it's not always easy. Like I think things get better and we become better positioned to deal with with what's happening in our in our life. We we have a choice now. I think we become active participants versus just these skin suits that are reactionary to the world around us. Mm-hmm. And we can figure out the direction that we want to go and so in these last few years like as as you face challenges and as you've as you've looked at your life and try to figure out, you know, find that balance of giving all of yourself to everybody versus just taking control of your life for you. Looking forward, how do you how do you find that path or how do you find that path for today? Good question. One thing I noticed before I even really realized that I was developing as a drinker, <laughs> as I was leveling up as a drinker, <laughs> um, I noticed that or one thing I really had this quest for a long time, I was always seeking balance in my life. I just felt like I just, I just felt everything didn't feel balanced. I was seeking balance and something that I've learned, you know, I find lessons everywhere and you know, yoga is a big part of my path. It was a pillar in my early sobriety, um, something I still practice daily. So I, I look and see these these lessons in everyday living. And one of the things that I noticed was learning about balance is it wasn't anything I was ever going to find. It, it's something that we don't find. It's something that we create. And I now see myself as not life is happening to me, that I see it as I'm a co-creator of my life. I get a choice in it and I can change what I don't like. You know, when I have the clarity and the courage to look at myself, I have the courage to take that first step of doing the thing that scares me to death. Creating balance to me is is just noticing where I feel off balance, creating a support system for myself. The community has become a huge part of my life. And that's because, you know, I've connected with people. I've reached out to people. I've you know, and I, for a long time, I felt very um, shy and nervous and scared and in reaching out to people and talking to people. And this, this whole community and, and recovery has taught me how to be so like, it's, it's taught me, it's, I've relearned how to be social. And knowing that I'm a little bit of a, you know, I always feel like I'm a very quirky person. And sometimes I feel a little awkward. Um, the community has taught me to just, it's okay to be who I am, and that I'm accepted as is. And um, it's given me confidence in myself again to to learn how to to make friendships and make connections. And I've made a lot here. And so I have a support system now. I have a family again. Um, there's a lot has changed in my own personal family. But just to have to, to build that community for myself and not just do it online or, you know, through the people I connect with through Recovery Elevator, but I go to meetups. And these are things I would never do. I mean, part of drinking was... It was a social lubricant for me. I needed it, I thought, to to lower my my guard and my walls and be who I really am. And um, so all that to say that I realized, like, I'm okay. I don't need anything to enhance who I am. Like, I am who I am, and I'm accepted as is. And, you know, I, I can create a support system in my, in my hometown and where I live. I've created a support with like-minded people by going out and getting to know people, um, that enjoy the things that I enjoy. And a lot of them are in recovery that I have come to learn later on, or just people that are like-minded and their focus isn't alcohol related things, activities. So yeah, so there's, there's that. 
I think that's a golden nugget to take us into rapid fire. Uh, we don't find balance. We create it. I think that's absolutely beautiful. Thank you for that. Tana, my clock might be wrong, but we are at the rapid fire round. This time I screamed by sister in 30 to 60 seconds. I'm going to ask you to answer these questions. Are you ready? Okay. <laughs> ready as I'll ever be. What was your biggest fear as you were thinking about quitting drinking? Biggest fear that life wouldn't be as fun. I think that's that pretty... I lose friends. <laughs> pretty common. Uh, mm-hmm. What is a positive that you did not expect in your life without alcohol? Um, positive. Gosh, there's too many to list. I'm. I would say a positive is the the family and friendships, the connections I've made. I mean, really amazing people I've met. And um, another thing is is um, time. I have time and energy and motivation to learn, to read again, to do things. Like my life is expanded in so many directions. I love it. What is your go-to alcohol-free drink? Plain sparkling water. No flavor. All right. Oh, or coffee. Wow. Coffee. Definitely coffee. That's what, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to... This is what I should have done. I was going to try to guess it, and that's what I would have guessed for you. Yeah. Would have, would have been coffee. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know you're a fan. Uh-huh. Uh, what is your plan of sobriety moving forward? Just to keep learning. Learning. Uh, just feel like my mind, my brain, the space that I have is... It's very sponge-like. It's been very sponge-like in the last four years. I've read so many more books. I've met so many more people, explored so many more things. Just, and you know, I find lessons, like I said, I find lessons everywhere. I'm just really into, into learning, growing. Stay teachable. Good advice. Yes. Uh, and what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are new to sobriety or thinking about quitting drinking? I would say that... It's different for all of us. So you can't compare your journey or your path or your your way to the you know to what you see in someone else. That you know it takes what it takes. And for each of us that looks a little different. And um, just don't give up. Never quit quitting. One of my favorite quotes is that um, in recovery or around recovery is that recovery is a team sport and I heard that a few times and then one day it landed for me in a way that I realized like, yeah, it really is. We help each other because there's so many people that have experienced it in a way that we can relate to. So just keep keep at it because eventually if you don't quit, <laughs> if you don't quit quitting, eventually you will get there. And yeah, it's just, it, life is, it's just, it's so, so good. So much brighter, so much more colorful. Love it. Last, but certainly not least, what is your favorite? You might need to ditch the booze if line. Okay. If. Well, probably mo- a low point. <laughs> if you um, wake up in your dog's bed alone <laughs> because you're craving connection and even your dog doesn't want to be close to you. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. It might be time. It might be time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Tana, thank you for your time. I love you, sister. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm grateful that you're here. 
and I'm, I'm grateful for your story. I appreciate you. I love you too, brother. I appreciate you. Thank you for your service. Recovery Elevator, thanks for listening. And thank you, Tana, for coming on the show. You're going to help a lot of people. I want to wish anyone who celebrates a Merry Christmas. We're getting close to the end of the big holiday season, and I'm here to say that I'm proud of you. We've been talking about it on this show and in Cafe RE about how challenging this time of year can be. From all the gatherings that might be centered around alcohol, to being around groups of people that might be triggering, or even working through some of our challenging past experiences involving family. You're doing a great job. All of these situations provide their own challenges, but you're here and you're in it. You're leaning into the willingness to grow, and no matter our day count, we're still in the arena. Keep digging, keep learning, and keep trying new things. If things get a little too tough, lean into your support systems. You're the only one that can do this, RE, but you don't have to do it alone. I love you guys.